Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, we'll take a closer look at the challenges facing the country. Inflation, immigration at the border, foreign policy, and more. As Washington prepares for the holidays, Congress is at yet another impasse. President Biden is stepping up his battle cry for 2024. Trump just talks the talk. We walk the walk. But that walk is a tough sell so far for the president. Despite inflation being at its lowest level in two years, six out of 10 Americans say the economy is bad. Democrats say Biden is still better than the leading alternative. In the end, when people are, they're mad at Joe Biden and they're going to be more mad at Donald Trump. Even if they have to hold their nose, they're going to support Joe Biden. Former President Trump is also making a pitch to the voters. I said I want to be a dictator for one day. And you know why I wanted to be a dictator? Because I want a wall, right? I want a wall and I want to drill, drill, drill. Republican voters like what Trump says, but some aren't convinced he can win. Trump's policies are, are good. I think with him, he's, you know, he's, he's so divisive as a, as a figure, um, which is, you know, his fault or not, that's just the reality of it. And worldwide concern over Israel's response to the Hamas attack grows, along with concern about hate here at home. We'll talk to Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders and Oklahoma Republican Senator James Lankford, plus Biden Administration Budget Director Shalonda Young. Politics and policy, it's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We'll get to what Americans are focused on as we wind up 2023 in just a moment. But we want to go first to our Charlie Daggett reporting from Israel. The southern city of Khan Yunis in flames from a bombardment Israel says is aimed at hunting down Hamas leaders. And with the U.S. alone in vetoing a U.N. Security Council ceasefire proposal, anti-American sentiment is higher than ever. These weapons and rockets are made in America, says resident Abu Abed Youssef. They support Israel to kill the youth, children and women. Even as Israel's military chief tells forces we need to press even harder. The head of the UN's World Food Program warned today half the population in Gaza faces starvation and a severe lack of clean water. Save the Children says deaths from starvation and disease might top those killed in bombings. It's becoming too dangerous for aid agencies to operate, says spokesperson for the UN in Gaza, Juliet Toomey. We have come to a point where we're not sure if we are able to fulfill our mandate and provide assistance to people in need in Gaza. This is unprecedented. It's too early to know exactly how the war in Gaza ends. The next big question, 
is who governs the territory next. And the answer may lie here in the West Bank. We're told post-war plans are already being drawn up with the West Bank's Palestinian Authority. Can I just confirm that you are in conversations with the United States about the future of Gaza? Yes. That's confirmed? Yes. They are discussion. They have idea. Okay. And we have idea. But those ideas may not be the same. According to Minister of Social Affairs Ahmed Majdalani, their plan would include an element of Hamas as a junior partner, despite Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's insistence Hamas must be completely destroyed. Maybe Israel, they, they can destroy his uh, uh, military uh, uh, forces and capabilities. and capability, but they cannot destroy Hamas as organization. An organization accused of mass murder and still holding more than 130 hostages. And families are still no closer to knowing their fate as the season of Hanukkah began. Instead of joy, nightly vigils like this one in Tel Aviv. There's not much to celebrate until their loved ones come home. With our colleagues inside Gaza reporting heavy fighting overnight, the UN says it's impossible to get aid into southern Gaza. But Margaret, an Israeli military official we spoke to, insisted there is a safe corridor leading from the Rafah crossing to so-called safe zones, but the UN just isn't using it. Charlie Daggett, thank you. We turn now to independent Senator Bernie Sanders, who joins us this morning from Burlington, Vermont. Good morning to you, Senator. Um, I'm morning. not sure. Okay, I think we've got your audio now, sir. Um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that he sees a gap between Israel's stated intent of limiting civilian casualties and reality. And the Secretary of Defense said they could face a strategic defeat given civilian casualties. Is this vocal enough criticism from the administration in your point of view? Well, it's a start. I think both Blinken and Austin are right. Uh, what the president is trying to do is trying to make clear to Netanyahu and his right-wing extremist, extremist government is, yes, you can go to war against Hamas, but you cannot go to war against the Palestinian people and cause the horrific uh, damage to human life that we are seeing right now. Margaret, there have been 16,000 people killed so far, Palestinians, two-thirds of whom are women and children. You're talking about 1.9 million people displaced, going around without any water, food, mm -hmm. without any medical supplies. It is a humanitarian disaster, and the United States has got to put all of the pressure that it can to tell Netanyahu to stop this disastrous military approach. Uh, and just to be clear, it, Israel says it's killed 7,000 militants. They haven't explained how many civilians they estimate they've killed. The U.S. says they can't, t can't tally it. Um, the number you cited there is from the Gaza Ministry of Health. Um, but the bottom line here is I, I know you have been very clear to your colleagues the U.S. should not provide more aid to Israel, to the Netanyahu government, with no strings attached, you wrote, because it would make the U.S. complicit. You said, quote, in an all-out war against innocent men, women, and children who have nothing to do with Hamas. What do you believe the Netanyahu government's intent is here? Hard to say. It really is hard to say. It may be that they're responding in rage against the horrific and terrible Hamas attack that killed 1,200 innocent Israelis. Uh, maybe in some of the right-wing extremist minds, there is the goal to drive the Palestinian people off of Gaza completely. Uh, they have now destroyed about half of the housing units uh, in Gaza, so it's hard to predict. But I think when General Austin said, you can win the battle but lose the war, Israel is losing the war in terms of how the world is looking at this situation. And I think that it would be irresponsible for the United States to give Netanyahu another $10 billion to continue to wage this awful uh, war. 
So progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib have been clear in calling for a ceasefire. You've taken some flack because you have not. The United States government is opposing a, a ceasefire as well. And they're, they're isolated uh, at the UN on that point. Why is it you oppose a ceasefire? Well, first of all, I strongly support and wish and hope that the United States will support the United Nations resolution that was vetoed, that we vetoed the other day. That was a humanitarian pause, a humanitarian ceasefire that would have, by the way, called for the release of all of the hostages held by Hamas and would have allowed the UN and other agencies to begin to supply the enormous amount of humanitarian aid that mm -hmm. the Palestinian people. In terms of a permanent ceasefire, I don't know how you could have a permanent ceasefire with Hamas, who has said before October 7th and after October 7th that they want to destroy Israel. They want a permanent war. I don't know how you have a permanent ceasefire with an attitude like that. Okay. So the, the war you're saying against Hamas is justified uh, in, in that way. I think uh, Israel has the right to defend itself yes. and to go after Hamas, not the Palestinian people. Okay. Would you vote against a version of this supplemental bill that President Biden is asking Congress for um, if, if it lacked the conditions on Israel aid you're calling for? Because you know there's other things that may be attached to, like Ukraine aid. I voted against the motion to proceed right. on that bill. I see a difference. I support, strongly support, aid for Ukraine to stand up to Putin's aggression. But I think what the Congress has got to do is make it clear to Netanyahu that we're not going to simply give him a blank check to kill women and children uh, in Palestine. Okay. White House officials say privately they don't think that the uh, blowback from this war will impact them negatively with Democratic voters by the time we get to the presidential election. Do you think they're miscalculating? I think this war has been... I don't know the answer to that, but I think the war clearly has been very harmful, not just among progressives, not just among Democrats. The American people were outraged by the Hamas attack against Israel, rightfully so, but they are equally outraged now by what Israel is doing. So you're seeing all over this country, people say, why are we giving money to an Israeli government that is doing such awful things? Will it hurt politically? It might. Uh, at the end of the day, I think, you know, Biden is going to win this election. But what's going on now is not uh, helpful. I want to ask you about hate in this country and concerns around it. Um, as you know, strong concern about anti-Semitism right now. Um, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik had a really pointed question and answer with university presidents this week. One of those presidents has since resigned as a result of the fallout. I wonder your thoughts of of how far free speech should be protected when it is calling for genocide. Well, I agree. Look, uh, we believe strongly in free speech and academia is an area where you're gonna hear a lot of debate about issues that may make us uncomfortable. Uh, but at the end of the day, when somebody is saying they believe in genocide for the Jewish people or racist attacks against black Americans, or et cetera, uh, that is not acceptable, I think, on a college campus where all of the students, black, Jewish, whatever, uh, Islamic, have got to feel comfortable on campus. Well, do you, okay, uh, Senator, um, we're going to have to leave it there uh, because we are running out of time, but thank you for thank you very much. weighing in today um, and dealing with us through those audio problems. We turn now to what Americans are seeing as the biggest problems facing the country as we head into a consequential election year. Our new CBS News poll says the most important challenge facing the country is inflation, with 7 in 10 Americans disapproving of President Biden's handling of it. Next, immigration at the border. And that issue is keeping a foreign aid package with badly needed support for Ukraine and aid to Israel tied up in Congress. The state of democracy is the third biggest problem in the eyes of Americans, and rounding out the top four, gun violence, another problem for which there seems to be little solution or political appetite for legislation that might help fix it. The executive director of our Elections and Surveys Unit, Anthony Salvanto, is here. So, 
Anthony, Americans say inflation is the top problem, but it's at the lowest level in two years. Why is there a disconnect between data and perception? I think it starts with this larger sense of lost opportunity beyond the immediate, where more people say that they feel worse off than their parents were at their age than better. And that runs counter to what we typically think of as the American dream, right? And it's especially true for millennials, for Gen Xers, for people in that, in that age range where in the, they're in the prime of their working and earning years. And look, for context, this is new. This inflationary period is new for the bulk of them. You have to go back 40 years to find a period in the U.S. where people face these kinds of inflationary pressures at this kind of a rate. So we ask people, okay, put this in context. The U.S. has been through ups and downs before. What's been the most difficult? And the most immediate is right now, is coming out of the pandemic and the economic impact of that, and then this post-pandemic inflationary period. Yes, there's some recency to that, but it just underlines the point of how much people process the economy right now by comparing their lives pre- and post-pandemic. And it's that framing that I think is essential to understanding how they process all of this. But the White House would argue inflation is headed in the right direction. It is going lower. And they look at that strong jobs number, just like we saw on Friday. So what is it that people need to experience on a personal level? Yeah. So I ask people directly, what do you take into account when you evaluate these things? And the personal outweighs what we call the macro numbers, the large numbers. Don't discount them, but it's personal experience, experience of the people you know and your friends, even the businesses around your local community. So that's number one. Number two is, look, the rate is slowing, but prices are still high. And so when you ask people, okay, the jobs market is strong. Yes, they acknowledge that, but their income isn't keeping up with inflation. And that's that immediate pocketbook impact where you see such big numbers say that. Because prices are still not back at those pre-pandemic levels. Right. Um, and, and when you look at what can be done yeah. from there, people say, okay, well, number one, there's no appetite for more rate hikes. And that's, Im that's important. That's mm -hmm. affecting a lot of, especially a lot of young people as well. Um, there's a large sense that they think the president can control inflation. And look, objectively, that may or may not be the case, but it kind of comes with the job, right? Um, they're not certain. In fact, many aren't sure what exactly the White House has done about all of this. And so his handling of inflation in particular remains low. The president has a lot of foreign policy, national security crises on his desk right now. The Israel-Hamas war is one of them. What is perception of that? So his handling of the war is negative and it's gone a little lower, in part because people aren't sure that the steps his administration is taking are bringing the war, helping bring the war to a peaceful resolution, number one. And number two, we've talked a lot about some of the splits within his own party on this, which is always important for a president on foreign policy. There's an increasing number of Democrats who now say they think the president is giving too much support to Israel. So that's important. Having said all that, his overall job approval is still both stable and hinges so much more, back to the top of this, on the economy. Anthony Salvanto, good to have you here. Thanks, Margaret. Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. 
turning immigration, the number of migrants crossing into the U.S. from Mexico is once again nearing an all-time high. Last week, Customs and Border Protection recorded nearly 19,000 apprehensions in its Tucson sector alone. And that is where we find our Adam Yamaguchi. Every day last week, hundreds of migrants gathered to turn themselves over to border agents at the Lukeville Crossing in Arizona, near a port of entry that was officially closed Monday due to the massive number of arrivals. It's daybreak, and so after a long, cold night of sleeping around campfires, trying to sleep around campfires, uh, the processing may, may begin momentarily. This mother of four tells us she's escaping the violence of Mexican cartels. I'm fighting as much as I can so my children can have something better. This is one of the border's most remote stretches, now one of the busiest. In the last year, there's been a 140% spike in migrant apprehensions in this area. Our cameras captured the moment smugglers helped dozens of people cross illegally. And uh, there the smugglers go. This is the breach in the wall that the smugglers have cut through, and this is what the Border Patrol is up against. And this is not an anomaly by any means. Here's another one, Rod, that was just cut and repaired today. Agents are really sort of playing a game of whack-a-mole. Uh, they see a breach, they respond to it, they try to seal it up, and then somewhere else uh, along this very long corridor uh, of the wall, uh, another breach occurs, and, and this is all by design. The smugglers realize that this particular area is vulnerable because there are so few resources and agents. And so they stand a much better chance of being able to funnel as many migrants as they can illegally into the U.S. And we're joined now by Senator James Lankford. He is the lead Republican negotiator as the Senate tries to come up with a deal to shore up the U.S. border. He joins us from Oklahoma City. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, this morning on another network, the lead Democratic negotiator, Senator Chris Murphy, said it is tragic Republicans are tying the border aid package to the issue of Ukraine aid. He said Republican demands right now are unreasonable and must become reasonable in the next 24 to 48 hours. That doesn't sound like you're on the cusp of an agreement. So let me let me just try to make a couple things clear on this. Actually, this started with the Biden administration saying that we need to do a national security package that has Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan and the border. And then they immediately came out and said we need more than funding. In fact, the word they used is funding for the border is a tourniquet. We need a change in policy. We've responded back to that, say we 100 percent agree on it. We've got to be able to have a change in policy on this. Right now, the push and pull is really a political push and pull rather than is anything else. If I talk to just about anyone in the country outside of Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. they would say the border is chaotic right now. We had the highest number of crossings of any September ever last okay. September, the highest October ever, the highest November ever. And we had the highest single day just this last week. It is l literally spiraling out of control. All we're trying to do is to say what tools are needed to be able to get this back in control so we don't have the chaos on our southern border. Well, the, the president is asking for that $14 billion, as you said, but they separate funding from policy changes. Um, but the president did say he's, he's willing to make significant compromises on policy to fix a broken immigration system. He's signaling flexibility. So what is the problem? So the problem is the administration is trying to be able to figure out how to be able to just slow down a little bit of the flow. We had 12,000 people, for instance, on Tuesday of this last week that crossed the border illegally. They're trying to figure out some way to be able to say, well, we'll do a few thousand less, but not actually stop the flow. Just to give you a perspective, so what would stop we've had flow? more people cross illegally. Well, I would tell you a lot of things. Let me just give you a context piece on this, though. During You take any year during the Obama administration, we've had more people cross illegally just October, November, and December so far this year than we had in any year in the Obama administration. So this is not a matter of just let's yeah. turn it down a little bit. We've got to figure out how to be able to manage this. The first things first is asylum. Right now, people come in and say, I want to request asylum. There's so many people, and the cartels know it, and the smugglers know it, that they can throw thousands of people a day. There's no way to process that. Mm -hmm. And so it's years before they're processed, so they're just released in the country. I thought that the White House was factor for more. asylum to tighten those regulations. 
Right now, we're actually screening about 500 people a day for asylum. A typical day in this last week was 10,000 people a day. Even if you double or triple, as the administration would say, well, let's just double the number of screenings we're doing. Now we're screening 1,000 people a day, and we're still releasing 9,000 people into the country. So that doesn't manage the actual issue. We've got to be able to figure out how we're going to manage capacity and what does it actually look like. As long as we're saying we'll, we'll screen 1,000 and then we'll release everyone else into the country, yeah. the cartels know that, and everyone coming will just pay the cartels, and they know they'll be released. Um, Senator, I know the majority leader in the Senate has said that the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, will not pass a supplemental package without this bill, H.R. 2, that passed the House with no Democratic votes. You've said that's not realistic. But has the Speaker been clear to you what his red lines are? Can you get House Republicans to approve something if you can get Democrats to agree to it? Yeah, we're, we're going to find out on that. No, uh, Speaker Johnson's not giving me the red line of what it has to be on this. Obviously, it's got to be able to pass the Senate. But it is the challenge of the House Republicans laid out a very good proposal, very thorough, covered a lot of issues, had no Democrats. Obviously, we're not going to get 20, 30 Democrats in the Senate or a Democrat White House to be able to sign that. But that doesn't mean we just sit and do nothing. We've got to be able to solve this crisis with 10,000 plus people a day on average just this last week crossing every day and half a million so far in the last two months. We can't just sit and say we're going to do nothing. Well, Politico has reported you are proposing a new expulsion authority similar to Title 42. That would also automate a border shutdown if the number of migrants crossing hits a certain level. You'd mandate electronic monitoring for everyone, including children. And you want to restrict the administration's parole authority to release migrants from detention. Is that accurate? No, it's actually not accurate. There are several things that I have proposed on that, some things that I have and some things that I have not. As you mentioned in the last segment, we're not going to have the opportunity to be able to, you and I, negotiate this out. But it would say we have to deal with the capacity issues. Uh, just like any restaurant or a theater, they have a capacity issue. So do we on it day to day. We have thousands of agents that have been pulled in. And right now, there's been no consideration with the White House of how do we actually manage the capacity issues that are there. They seem to be focused on how many people can we just release into the country and tell them we'll do a hearing sometime later when literally we don't know these people. Literally thousands of people have crossed the border just in the past few months yes. that this administration identified as what they call special interest aliens, specifically saying they're a national security risk, but they were released into the country on right. their own recognizance. We've got to be able to stop that. Right. But it, you'd have to negotiate changes to the law. And we are running out of time in 2023. Right. You've also attached this. Well, the House has argued that the border bill would need to be attached to Ukraine funding in order to pass. President Biden says that you, sir, are giving Vladimir Putin a Christmas present because this doesn't look like it's going to pass in 2023. And it's unclear when it could. Yeah, I'm by far no fan of Vladimir Putin. The president knows that full well. This is not a Christmas present to him. Actually, the president himself started by saying, if we're going to deal with national right. security, we've got to deal with Ukraine and we have to deal with the border. We've responded. That's correct. I don't meet very many Americans that think what's happening at the border is going well. And even the president's team themselves actually said, if you hand them more money, it doesn't solve the problem. It just facilitates more people coming into the country. We have drugs coming into the country. Yeah. We have national security risks coming into the country. And they've literally shut down legal migration. The San Ysidro port, the busiest port in America, was shut down this weekend as they moved all the right. staff off of legal migration to help facilitate illegal migration. That's got to stop. No, no, we're seeing in our own polling that this is a top issue for Americans. So the president would be incentivized right. here. But what you're talking about is policy changes and this linkage to Ukraine. The president says if they don't get this funding now, that it will kneecap Ukraine on the battlefield. Can you get Ukraine aid passed separate from this? No. No, the, the, the focus is we hear from so many people is why would we deal with other people's national security and ignore American national security? Why would we literally allow people across our southern border? This administration labels national security risks by the thousands coming in the country, separate from just the migrants that are coming from employment. We have individuals, they've literally labeled national security risks coming into the country. Why would we not work to be able to stop that? We can do two things at once with the United States of America. These negotiations haven't been going on a week. They've been going on months. Right. So we've come a long ways. It's time to be able to finish this, make a decision, and do what we can do to be able to help the nation. We can't do everything on the border, but we can do the things to actually begin to control the border so that the United States is in control of our boundaries, not the cartels. Well, we will watch and see what you're able to get done in these coming days. Senator, thank you for your time. 
And now for the administration's position on that national security funding package, we turn to the head of the Office of Management and Budget, Shalanda Young. Good morning to Hi, you. Margaret. Good to have you here in person. Thanks for being here. But, uh, let me just start with what we were talking about here. Is the president going to get more directly involved this week? We know his chief of staff has been involved in these border talks. If this is an emergency, does he need to be more hands-on? Look, Congress is having conversations. You heard Senator Lankford's purview. Conversations are happening uh, that need to happen. The one thing I agree with that the senator said is it's time. I sent a letter to Congress outlining the stakes if Ukraine uh, aid is cut off, mm -hmm. what that means. The one thing I do take issue with is Americans want their national security taken care of. We agree with that. What happens if Putin marches through Ukraine? What's mm -hmm. next? NATO countries. Right. Our sons and daughters are at risk of being a part of a larger conflict. And it's not just Putin. Other dictators watching what Congress is doing. Right. Uh, what is what signal does that send? So our national security is also influenced with not providing Ukraine. But you're talking past each other because Senator Lankford is saying he also agrees aid for Ukraine needs to pass. It's this method of being able to get it through Congress that seems to be the problem right now. Can there be a deal on the border, do you think, that would unlock the Ukraine aid? So I've done a lot of funding negotiations uh, over my career in this town. Negotiations that fail. Mm -hmm is when one side can't take yes for an answer. They push for too much. They push for an HR2, mm -hmm. uh, which as the senator pointed out, all Democrats voted against. The White House had a veto threat. You can't have everything your way in a negotiation. Democrats and Republicans have to vote for this bill. So I agree, it's time to cut a deal that both sides can agree to. So let's talk about Ukraine specifically. You warned in October and back in September that funding was running low. You sent a letter Monday to the speaker saying, we are out of money to support Ukraine in this fight. This isn't a next year problem. When precisely will U.S. funding be exhausted? Look, we have, uh, you, you know, budgetary standpoint, we have about a billion dollars left to replenish our own stockpile. So this comes down to a policy decision. Do we risk our own U.S. readiness as the world is more complex? We've seen it. Or does Congress uh, ensure that we can protect our, our own national security while also being there for our allies like Ukraine? Uh, and it shouldn't be either or. Congress should do what it's done several other times in a bipartisan manner, fund our own national security, uh, and make sure we are there for our allies. And by the way, Margaret, I think it's important to know the majority of money that we talk about for Ukraine stays at home. Our defense industrial base uh, gets the majority of this funding to build more equipment, weapons, ammunition. That means American jobs, right. good paying American jobs. Right. Um, so a deal you're not completely rolling out here. Um, but I want to ask you to weigh in on some of the polling that we shared with our viewers. Um, the top two issues for American voters are inflation and the border. And the president gets large disapproval rates for handling inflation. And Americans think his administration's actions led to it growing, as you can see there, not slowing. Why don't you think the president's policies are resonating more? Look, the president gets it. I get it. I have a 95-year-old grandmother in Clinton, Louisiana. So I get firsthand uh, feedback on what people are feeling at the ground uh, in these small little towns like I'm from. So I get it. The macro numbers are going as well as anybody could have predicted, right? Inflation coming down, uh, job numbers remaining strong, uh, but people have got to feel it. And it's going to take time. When the macro economy, uh, we see good numbers, that often takes time to, to trickle through, but we can't give up. I'm on his economics team, and the thing we focus on the most is how do we bring down costs. That's why you hear us talk about junk fees. What right. is that? That saves people's money. When we go after banks and hotels, people who charge you an extra twenty or fifty dollars, but everything we market can, prices up two percent versus you know. Yeah, but last everything year, we can do, we cannot leave any stone unturned to make sure people are paying less for these out of prescription drugs. Mm -hmm. That's the reason the president 
asked and fought for Congress to cap insulin at $35 a month. Seeing the awareness. We saw that in our polling. We're not yeah. seeing the linkage between what you're saying the president's doing and the public's perception right. of it. Is that messaging or is it just that these programs are slow in rolling out so people aren't feeling the impact? I think it is. I just said, you know, as inflation comes down, it does take time for that macro effects to be felt on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I believe as we continue to see that progress on inflation, people will feel it in their pocketbooks as they go to the grocery store. Uh, that is going to come home and we just have to continue to make progress on a macro level. And we are. Okay. Thank you for coming Thank to you talk so much. to us today. We'll have to leave it there and we'll be right back. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And for some political analysis, we're joined now by CBS News chief election and campaign correspondent Robert Costa and CBS News senior White House and political correspondent Ed O'Keefe. Good to have you both here. See you. Uh, Robert Costa, you had a key interview with Kevin McCarthy, the former Speaker of the House, um, and he has announced he's stepping away. This is going to make the GOP slim margin even skinnier. I want to play a portion of your interview here. Speaker Johnson, so far, is he a deer in the headlights or doing a decent job? This is a very hard job. <laughs> you know, if I, if I was the best to give advice, I'd still be in it. Um, and, and to be fair to Speaker Johnson, he, he didn't have the years before to plan. He wasn't the majority leader. He wasn't the minority leader. He's doing fine. And he, it's like anything else, 10,000 hours, you improve at your job. I, I think the best advice I could give to him, you're the Speaker of the House. Do not, do not govern in the idea that you're afraid somebody's going to make a motion to vacate. When I made the decision to pay our troops and not shut down, I knew they were going to make a motion to vacate on me. I didn't even know the Democrats would go along with it. But what I did know is I had been in that room before. I had watched what has failed. And I knew at that moment that when I thought before I ran for office, you'd always tell yourself, would you do what you think was right? Would you literally risk your job and do it? You say you would, but when you came to that moment, I hope history writes that I actually did what I said I would do before I ever got elected when that moment came. And I would do it all again because I hope others would look at that and do the exact same thing. It was right. He's passionate there. Um, but what he's putting his finger on is that question of can Mike Johnson govern and, by the way, work with Democrats? Uh, former Speaker McCarthy's uh, comment there is so revealing. Publicly, he's saying he believes the new Speaker, Mike Johnson, is doing just fine. But based on my reporting, my conversations with other House Republicans, key insiders in Washington, they say Speaker Johnson has political capital with House Republicans. He's popular with conservatives in the House, but he doesn't have political capital in Washington, just as he needs to probably cut a deal with President Biden, as you've been discussing with your guests on Ukraine, on Israel. He's moving Moving forward with an impeachment process inside of the House of Representatives, of course, testing his relationship with the president at this crucial time. He doesn't have much of a relationship with Leader McConnell, the minority leader in the U.S. Senate. Senate Republicans keeping the House out of those discussions over immigration with Senator Langford and others. The question looming over the new speaker is how is he going to address Israel? Ukraine, government funding early next year. And he doesn't have answers at this point because he's still settling into the job. And he has a 
January 19th shutdown deadline uh, hanging over his head. I mean, Ed, we've been talking about this all throughout the program. Does the White House need to step in here and close a deal on the border? Do they want to? They would like to. The president certainly would like to come up with something. He knows there'll be some pain to pay with certain elements of the Democratic Party, but deal making is his thing, especially if it's a bipartisan deal, even if it could, even if it could be ugly. Um, but yes, they, they've got to try to get something done on this, uh, if only to sort of go into an election year and say, I'm addressing what is now what, the second most important or urgent issue to voters and demonstrate that you can do something. Whether he picks up the phone himself this week and starts getting into the details remains to be seen. If we see more active engagement from the chief of staff, from others around the president doing this, that's a sign that they're getting closer. But he, remember, got burned a lot, spending too much time on legislative details in the beginning. So he's spent most of this year backing off saying, leave it to Congress. That also allows him to blame Congress for the inaction. We'll see now in the coming days if he jumps in. You know, another thing we saw in our polling that Anthony shared was that um, Americans are disapproving of the president's handling of this crisis in Israel. I know you went out to that key state of Michigan um, to report on on what voters there are thinking. Yeah. What did you learn on the ground? So important, as Anthony pointed out earlier, the war is not necessarily the biggest issue of concern. But it is in parts of Michigan, Dearborn, Michigan especially, largest concentration of Arab American voters in that critical swing state who look at what's happened over the last 60 days and say, I can't vote for him. He's allowed my relatives or my friend's relatives or my friend's neighbors to get killed. How can we possibly support somebody who's allowed so much civilian death? These are people who campaigned against Donald Trump four years in in 2016 and in 2020, Voted for Biden in 2020 because they knew he was a better option. They look at the two of them now, if that is your option next November, and say, well, just skip that. Mm-hmm. Why that matters? Small but influential group of voters inside a big county, inside a big swing state, that Joe Biden needs to win, that Donald Trump wants to win back. Right. If you start losing those small groups when these elections are being won on the margins, you're in real trouble. Exactly. Um, and we're going to continue to watch that. I know you are, Ed. Um, Bob, Robert Costa, before I let you go, um, the president, the former president, is walking into a courtroom tomorrow uh, with this New York civil fraud case. How much are these legal complications impacting his thinking? I'll be there in New York sitting behind him. I've sat behind him in court before in this civil tr- fraud trial. What's that well, like? It, it, it's revealing. You're seeing his his uh, silhouette in front of you kind of bobbing and weaving in frustration because he can't stand this judge in the civil fraud case. What an American scene to see a former president sitting in a courtroom while he's also the Republican frontrunner. And this, this trial, more than anything, I'm told by his allies, frustrates him. He talks more in private, I'm told, about the civil fraud trial than his own Republican rivals who had a debate a few days ago that many Republicans seem to shrug off. At this point, it looks like, as McCarthy told me, Trump is going to be the nominee unless former Ambassador Haley or Governor DeSantis or Governor Christie really start to pick up momentum. And it seems like the party, based on my conversations with party leaders, are starting to just come around to that fact, even though Trump might wrap up the nomination next year, Mm -hmm. just as he begins a federal trial over January 6th. We're going to have to leave it there, but we have plenty more to talk to you about. And I know we will in the weeks and months ahead. We'll be back in a moment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We want to return to the Gaza humanitarian crisis and the devastating impact on its residents, particularly children. Joining us is the president and CEO of Save the Children U.S., Yanti Saripto. Good to have you here. Thank you for having me, Margaret. In person. We knew half of the residents of Gaza before the war were children. 
for those who have survived the war to date? What is life like for them? It's an unbelievable humanitarian catastrophe, Margaret. We have no access to basic services. There is an absence of clean water. You saw in the earlier segment children drinking dirty water from a, from a pipe on the ground. Well, there's, the rainy season has started. There is sewage in the streets. There is no food. There is no electricity. Most of the hospitals are not functioning anymore. There is no, there's no electricity. It is unspeakable, essentially, what's unfolding before our eyes. And humanitarian agencies cannot help the population of Gaza and those children in the current situation. Cannot help them. Uh, why? Is that because there is only this one open gate at present to allow aid in and Israel screening it all? That is, is one of the issues as well. But in the current... I mean, when the humanitarian pause happened a few days ago for seven days, right. those seven days were not enough. You cannot really rebuild a warehouse in seven days. But, we, and there, but there was aid coming in. Mm -hmm. We could even deliver some of those supplies, even without fuel, the necessary fuel to get stuff all the way up to the north. But currently, with all this violence, the, the attacks, the shelling, the violence, we cannot go out and deliver safely. We, cannot even, we also cannot ask families and children to come out and receive those mm -hmm. deliveries because that is not safe either. People are putting up tents in the middle of the road uh, because that's the only way to get shelter currently. You know, I think um, any parent seeing images of a child in pain or suffering, it is just so hard to stomach. But the other statistic that I saw from the UN was that 180 women give birth each day in Gaza. And UNICEF said 105,000 breastfeeding mothers are struggling to even feed themselves. If you aren't getting a newborn baby food in those first six months, you are setting them up for a horrible life. So what is happening to that next generation? It, well, exactly right. We see, you know, mothers can't feed their children. Mothers are giving birth in overcrowded shelters. They're having C-sections without anesthesia. I mean, you know, we've got premature babies in incubators that cannot run because there's no electricity. No, it is absolutely horrific what has happened to this generation of children. And we know that if they don't get the food and the ne necessary supplies that they need, certainly in those first, you know, months of life, mm -hmm. that is already setting them behind. The U.S. vetoed that ceasefire call at the United Nations. Right. Um, and afterwards, your organization released a statement said, Israel is forcing civilians into so-called safe zones that cannot accommodate them and, quote, deliberately depriving the civilian population of food, water, and fuel, willfully impeding relief supplies and using starvation as a method of warfare. That is a very strong allegation in that press release yesterday. Why do you say this is deliberate? There is, I mean, look, humanitarian organizations like ours, we're really running out of words to describe how bad it is. We work in crises all over the world, from Afghanistan to Sudan, to Ethiopia, to the Democratic Republic of Congo. So we are no strangers to war and conflict. Mm -hmm. But what is happening here is that there is, there's two million people, a million children in a very, very small space. There is no way to get out. Nobody can flee, which is not the case in most of these other crises. Um, and there is nothing coming in. And there's an absence of basic necessities. So the siege that's uh, put upon the people of Gaza is not, A, we cannot do it. There is no market of sorts to allow people to get access to food and water and anything they need. So, so we think that is a willful, um, um, you know, it's a choice. It's a choice. It's a choice. Uh, and it's withholding aid from the population. The United States, the president himself, has been on the phone pressing for aid to flow in more. Um, there are other ways to get into Gaza. Israel controls those gates. Yep. Uh, have they opened yet? Because the White House said they were about to. We haven't heard anything mm. of that effect. The Rafah crossing is open. It was never set up to allow for that capacity of aid that is required. Uh, also, we haven't seen even those 100, 150 trucks, 200 trucks come, come across uh, the Rafah crossing over the past couple of days after the ending of the pause. So we are continuously calling for Karem Shalom to also open, to allow for more to come in if and when the fighting stops. Will you stay working in Gaza? Can you? We will. We have been there since 1953. We're not leaving now. We have 25 staff there. We won't leave. But at the moment, 
working for us in a safe and uh, quality way is impossible. All right. Thank you for sharing that story uh, of what's happening inside. We'll be right back. Thank you all for watching. Until next week, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders, Oklahoma Republican Senator James Lankford, the Director of the White House Office of Management and Budget, Shalanda Young, CBS News Director of Elections and Surveys, Anthony Salvanto, and the President and CEO of Save the Children U.S., Yanti Saripto. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.